All right, well, welcome to part two of our series in worship. Let's uh, go ahead and open in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you again for this day and for the opportunity to come together as your people, to look into your word, to glorify your name. We pray, Father, that our time of study would be uh, enlightening this next hour, that we would uh, look into your word and that you would use your word to conform us to your image and to teach us about the worship of our God, the proper worship of our God. So Lord, we commit this time to you and we ask for your Spirit's blessing upon our time for the glory of your great name. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Alright, well, good morning and welcome to our second... My PowerPoint is not working. Our second series... This is awkward. Thank you. Welcome to our second Sunday School series covering the doctrine of worship. And as I mentioned, I guess two weeks ago now, we're going to take the next eight to ten weeks, or probably longer, I'm guessing, to talk about what is the biblical and reformed doctrine of worship. All right, let's try this again. It's still not working. There we go. All right. Eight to ten weeks. See, I had memorized my PowerPoint. There we go. I knew exactly where we were going. Eight to ten weeks on the doctrine of worship. And I've entitled it Biblical and Reformed Worship because, well, kind of obvious here, we're going to use Scripture as our guide. It's a biblical study of the doctrine of worship. But also, it's a Reformed study because our confession will be a guide as well as we seek to understand the doctrine of worship. Reformed because, well, that's the doctrinal position of our church. The Reformed doctrine of worship is very unique. It's very carefully articulated in the Reformed confessions. And so our goal in this series is to set forth the Reformed doctrine of worship and to demonstrate how it's supported by Scripture and vice versa. Now, just to recap a little bit of what we talked about last time. Why this topic? Why here? Why now? Why in this church today? Well, two weeks ago we noted that you know there's a lot of confusion in our day about worship. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of worship wars. How do we even define worship? How do we know when we've worshipped well? How do we know when there is worship that is not pleasing to God? So we concluded that for the sake of truth, for the sake of peace in the church, for the sake of our unity, that we ought to hold objective, defendable, scriptural reasons for how and what we do in worship. So that's why we're covering that topic here in our Sunday School series. 
We talked also about the importance of this topic. We noted that, for example, the first four of the Ten Commandments concern worship. We talked about that last time. It's pretty prominent in the moral law of God. We talked about uh, Matthew 7, where Jesus condemns the Pharisees for um, holding to traditions of men and basically binding those burdens upon people. So we talked about the dangers of imposing our own traditions on other people in the name of God. That's why it's important. And we talked about as well that worship is central to a church's calling. It's, it's the fountain from which everything else in the church flows. Community, discipleship, evangelism. Can you guys read that? It's a little... Service, unity. Worship is central to the life of the church. It's central to everything that the church does. It is central to discipleship. It's central to the fulfilling of the Great Commission. We will never rise above worship, our own worship in this church. Or I should just put it this way. Everything else we do in this church will never rise above the level of our worship. Thank you. Yes, Jen. This might be stupid question of the day. Worship seems like kind of a vague term to me. Are you talking specifically about the worship service? Or are you talking about worship being giving praise and honor and glory to God, etc.? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. What am I talking about in worship? And part of the reason for this study is we're going to define the doctrine. We're going to define worship. Let's see if I can get that a little bit better. So we are going to seek to come to a definition of worship. Um, but more specifically, to answer your question, uh, I am going to talk about the distinction between private and public worship and where we see that in Scripture. And most specifically, I am talking about corporate worship when I say things like this, that it's central to a church's calling, it's central to discipleship and the Great Commission. That's why it's important for us to cover it as a church because we've got to understand what we're doing when we come together. We will talk about private worship and obviously private worship plays an important role in this too. But um, when thinking about the church as the church, it's the public worship that really brings us together and unites us. Worship is the ultimate reason we exist, both as, both as creatures and as new creature, creatures in Christ. And this is talking more um, private, personal worship here. Um, it's why we were created and it's why we were brought to Christ. This is what we considered last time, particularly from First Peter 2. We've been called out so that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us. And then, two weeks ago, we talked briefly about an outline to our approach. Um, how are we going to approach this topic? How do we study it and form conclusions? How are we going to answer all of the questions at hand? If you remember, we brought up a whole lot of questions about music style, you know, what is permissible. We talked about uh, just, yeah, uh, what's permissible in worship, what do we do, what do we don't do, um, tradition, music style, everything of that nature. Well, 
we kind of outlined our approach, how are we going to study this? And that's really what we're going to kind of hit on today. So, today, I want to talk about how we approach this study. How do we even, where do we even begin to talk about, or to answer the question, what is worship? I want to argue for a theological approach to this issue. I'm going to explain what I mean by that and kind of give a brief defense of that. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then we're going to take a theological approach. And we're going to look at, we're not going to get to all these today, we're only going to get to this one. But this is where we're going. See, when I put together the today slide, I was much more ambitious on what we could cover. But we're going we're to approach worship in light of these doctrines. How do these doctrines inform us on the worship of God? And again, I'm going to get to this in a second because I'm going to explain what I mean by this. But that's where we're going. So let's, let's, let's jump into this, and I'm sure there will be questions here in a moment. How do we approach this topic? How do we form conclusions? How do we pinpoint and identify what the Bible says? Now, the key here is, my purpose in this study is not just to give you a bunch of information. I can do that. I mean, if you want me to just lay out the Reformed doctrine of worship and just boom, 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 here is what we confess, here is what we believe, that's no problem. But that's not what I want to do here. Of course, I'm going to lay out a bunch of information. But really, I want you to know how to study things like this yourself. I want you to think through these things and come to sound biblical conclusions. I don't just want to tell you what we believe. I want to show you why we believe it and how we got there so that, you know, you're tracking with me. And that you're informed not just on the doctrine of worship, but that you're properly informed on how do we approach things like this, and what if there's another area of Scripture that I want to study? How do I go about studying the issue? So that's kind of my, my goal when I, when, I, when I seek to answer the question, how do we approach this topic? I want to teach you how to approach the topic. That's one of my goals here in this series. So I'm going to argue that we must approach this issue exegetically and theologically. Now what do I mean when I say exegetically? Who can answer that for me? Sophie. Getting it from the Bible, exactly. The text. Exegesis of a text is pulling out the meaning of a text. Okay? What about theologically? Does that not come from the Bible? What do I mean when I say we're going to approach it exegetically? Not just exegetically, but also theologically. Our interpretation in light of the whole Bible? Yes, our interpretation in light of the whole Bible. Not just one verse. This is how you ought to worship. This is the definition of worship. 
but it's approaching it in light of everything that the Bible says. So, a few examples here. Exegetically, we're studying specific verses that talk about worship. You know, it's like doing a word study. Where does the word worship appear in Scripture? Let's go to those words, let's define them, and let's see what they say. And so we'll look, you know, for example, at how Israel worshiped. What can that teach us? How God forbid Israel to worship in certain ways. What can we learn from that? How do the New Testament churches worship? How do the apostles instruct the New Testament church to worship? This would be exegetically looking at specific verses to talk about worship and forming conclusions. But theologically, approaching it theologically is studying the implications of Scripture and different Scriptures and the whole of Scripture when compared to each other. So this is like the consistent application of Scripture when compared to other truths in other Scriptures. So let me just ask a question. When talking about worship, why can't we just do a word study? Anybody want to offer some reasons why we can't just say, all we need to do is do a word study on worship, and then that's all that the Bible says on worship? Why can't we do that? Haley? Well, because we're currently taking it out of context and not looking at it as Scripture as a whole. And so it might either be referring to a specific circumstance happening in history or something like that. Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, you run the greater risk of taking something out of context. Um, Our confession states that the obscure passages in Scripture are explained by the more clear passages in Scripture. So, if we run into a Scripture that we don't understand, we're to seek what other Scriptures say to bring proper understanding of that. Yes, Grace. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes, because the Bible, the verses that talk about who God is, um, may not ever mention the word worship. And yet, if you don't know who God is, how can you say that you're worshiping properly? Or that you're even worshiping the right God? Let me frame it this way. Why can't we just limit our doctrine of worship to specific instructions such as do this and don't do that? I mean, you guys kind of argued, your answers kind of answered that already, but anybody else want to chime in? Why can't we just limit our doctrine of worship to do this in worship, don't do that in worship? Selfie. Because the Bible doesn't give us a list. Nick, did you have something? Uh, yeah, because if worship is our ultimate purpose, then boiling it down to do's and don'ts quickly becomes towards righteousness. Well, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think, in fact, I'm going to argue that later on that uh, the Bible does not, the New Testament does not give us a strict liturgy. This is how everything always must go because of our natural propensity towards idolatry. And if it gave us a list, we would exalt the list and forget or neglect 
or overlook the true spirit of worship, spirit and in truth. But this is exactly right. Um, Where does it say that we can or cannot have a fog machine in our worship services? Just some random examples here. Or why can't we do underwater basket weaving and say, this is what pleases God the most? You see, if we just limit to a word study, we'll say, well, the Bible never says we can't do that. It never says that we can't bring in anything that we want. Where does it say that our church services must be centered around specific things rather than just whatever makes us feel good? I'm going to talk about in the sermon today that you know the preaching of the cross, it's scandalous, it pushes people away in John chapter 6. It seems counterintuitive to reaching the culture nowadays. Um... Why do our services center around the preaching of a scandalous message? I mean, can't we do something that makes us feel better, that, that is more comforting, that is more inspiring, that is more you know, engaging with the culture? Well, if we just limit ourselves to what specifically Scripture says, then we can basically do anything, anything we want. So we've got to approach it. Theologically, Scripture does not give us a liturgy. It does not give us very many specifics on how to worship, what to include, what to do, what not to do, the music style, things of that nature. Now, I guess in some sense I will argue that Scripture does speak very specifically on how to worship and what we are to do. But it doesn't give us like a strict liturgy. It doesn't lay things out for us and answer every question that we have. And so, just because it does not give us a liturgy, does that mean that just anything goes? Obviously, my argument is going to be no. So we do live in a day where many believe that because the New Testament doesn't speak real specifically on worship, at least in compared to how God spoke in the Old Testament about worship, Many believe just by default then, well, then we have freedom to do whatever we want. Essentially, everything that's reasonable, everything that works, everything that has a good effect, everything that reaches people. But that's not what we hold. We do believe that we have freedom in Christ. Especially compared to the Old Testament rituals and the burdens that they had to bear. But this does not mean... That just anything goes as if God has left everything up to us entirely. So, my argument here is that we've got to approach the topic from the standpoint of all of Scripture, approach it theologically, that it's built off of and it's related to other truths that do not specifically mention the word worship. And I want to point out how this can be seen and how 
The confession itself, the Westminster and the London Baptist Confession, are ordered. First, you know, our, our chapter, our confession's chapter on worship doesn't even come until chapter 22. If you've read the confession, you probably notice that it builds upon itself. That there is a progression in it. That there are phrases that are defined early on that later on are appealed to. And if you don't recognize that, you're going to miss half of what they say. You have to read the confession sideways, as it were. As all connected, as one argument. So, the chapter on worship comes after 21 other chapters. And part of my argument is that it's, it comes after all this stuff because it's connected to and it's built upon all these other doctrines of the Christian faith. For example, chapter 1, the doctrine of Scripture. What does it say about Scripture? Well, that's going to determine where you go, as we will consider specifically in a moment, it will determine where you go in relation to worship, the doctrine of worship. Chapter 2 and 3, the doctrine of God. Chapter 6, the doctrine of man's fall into sin. So there's who we are, there's who God is. In chapter 7 through 20, the doctrines concerning the gospel. These things are prerequisites. These are like the foundational stones upon which the house of worship is built upon. And if you don't have those foundational stones, then you can't really build a house. At least not one that's going to stand up. It's interesting, chapter 21 and following deals with the doctrine of Christian liberty. Christian liberty is intimately related to our doctrine of worship. And that's going to be a recurring theme as we go along. Can anyone answer why, maybe? Anyone know why Christian liberty is related to our doctrine of worship? John? It tells us something about the boundaries of what's permissible. Yes, exactly. What can the church impose upon you? Roman Catholic Church, we'll talk about that in a minute. You know, they withhold the cup from you. You can take the Eucharist, the, the bread in the Lord's Supper, but the cup's only for the special people, the, the priests. The people are not permitted because they're sinful, they're extra sinful. The people are not given the cup in the Lord's Supper. Well, that's a denial of the liberty that we have in Christ. God. Jesus Christ gave the cup in the Lord's Supper. And they require other things of you. The sign of the cross, you know, um, incense and candles and all this stuff. Th- these are things that they require of you. Confession in, in, uh, to a priest and, and penance and saying Hail Mary. This violates your Christian liberty because the church is imposing upon you things that are not found in Scripture. So we'll talk more about that. But worship is related to the doctrine of Christian liberty. 
All right, move quickly. On the basis of these things, can we address worship? That's my point. So just to show this from the confession, chapter 22-1, the doctrine of worship. The light of nature shows that there is a God. Well, what does that hit on? This specifically refers to natural revelation, known apart from the Scriptures. This has already been addressed earlier in the confession. So when they talk about worship, they start with something they've already defined. There is revelation that is known about God apart from the Scriptures. This is Romans 1, in the things that are made. You know, we can see creation and know that there is a God. We can know His authority, His righteousness, His holiness. We know from this light of nature that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. Okay, this is who God is, right? But it gets on. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and is so limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, blah, 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 or in any other way prescribed, not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So it answers the question, the acceptable way of worshiping Him is connected to the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. We've got to determine what we believe and confess about the Scripture before we can ever say, this is what worship is pleasing to God. Hopefully that's obvious to everyone here. All right. Two examples of this for approaching, two scriptural examples for approaching this topic theologically. We talked a little bit about this two weeks ago. I'm going to briefly, briefly mention it again. We have in Matthew 22 a dispute with the Sadducees. The Sadducees denied that there was a resurrection. So they came to Jesus and they said, okay. The man dies having no children. His brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. But there were seven brothers and they all died. Some horrible luck in this family. And they used that to say, okay, well, who's going to get that wife in the new creation? And what They're trying to show the absurdity of the resurrection in their minds. How does Jesus respond? Does he point to an Old Testament text that talks about the word resurrection? No. He says, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. The issue with them is that there are no specific or explicit verses in the Old Testament that talk about the resurrection of the dead. Of course, this is debated. The issue of what books they accepted comes into play because the prophets certainly talk about a resurrection. But Jesus doesn't run to a specific verse, and yet He still says to them, you don't know the Scriptures. You're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures. Does He quote a Scripture? No, He makes a theological deduction to prove His point and uphold the resurrection of the dead. He says, looking back here, Have you not read 
What was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's making a theological point. Since God is called the God of Abraham, and Abraham is long dead, we can make a theological deduction that God is a God of the living, and thus Abraham is still alive in the new creation. So again, I'm trying to show that the legitimacy of arguing theologically. One more example here. Peter, preaching Christ at Pentecost. Peter's in the midst of a sermon and he says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And he goes on. Peter is quoting Psalm 16, 8-11. It's a direct quote. Word for word in verses 25-28. through 28. It's part of his sermon. But notice what he says in verse 31. He... This points back to David. Peter concludes, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Resurrection is not mentioned in the psalm. Christ is not mentioned in the psalm. Peter, come on, don't you believe the Bible? How can you do that? You're adding in things that aren't there, Peter. But the theological concepts are there. And that's what Peter is doing. He sees that Christ and the resurrection are in this psalm, even though those two things aren't mentioned. He makes a connection, forms a doctrine, a conclusion, based upon a theological approach to this passage. So, we must make theological deductions based upon the clear implications and teaching of all of Scripture and not limit ourselves to to only that which is explicitly stated. It's the practice of the New Testament authors And it's important for us as we approach this topic. Just real quickly here, um, Biblicism. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that word before. But Biblicism refers to one who refuses to recognize theological concepts in a text when the theological words are not in a text. I just believe the Bible. Have you heard that before? And it's the basis for... (laughs) Sorry, we're in the South. I had a little accent there. I'm sure Kim can appreciate. (laughs) The thing about the Church of Christ, no creed but Christ. We don't have a confession of faith. We just believe the Bible. And so, 
They use that. That's a form of biblicism. They deny theological concepts and they only hold to the specific words of the text. And I hope you're catching on that that's a bad thing. I always go back to comments about Elijah when Jesus was there. He said, you can't be Messiah because Elijah has to return first and Elijah hasn't returned. Mm. And the disciples asked Jesus, but I eventually said, well, Elijah did return. That was John the Baptist. You missed it. Yeah. You know, and if you really look for the quotes, quite very clearly says, no, Elijah did come. Yep. That was, that was John, but you, you missed it yep. because they're taking it so literally. Elijah coming to that's a great point. That's, a, that's one of my favorites when I talk with biblicists. Because <laughs> you go to the Malachi, you go to the very end of the Old Testament, you see very clearly Elijah must come first. And it's like, okay, well, where's Elijah? But you're right, Jesus says it was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said it himself too. That's why he dressed like Elijah did with you know camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey just like Elijah. I mean, it's, just, it's all there, so... I mentioned this before, but heretics demand a specific verse for everything. And, you know, that appears in Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, they deny the divinity of Christ and things of that nature. They demand a specific, explicit, clear-as-day verse for everything, or they reject it. It is a characteristic of heretics. And even one of the faults of the Pharisees is that they held to specific words like, Thou shalt not kill. Well, that means, you know... Taking a knife and actually slaying someone. And Jesus is like, no, you missed it. He's talking about the heart. Adultery is not a physical act alone. It is a matter of the heart. So they held on to these specific things, like, like the um, uh, phylacteries. I said this the other day. My wife was like, what's a phylactery? Phylactery. Jesus says you're, you, to the Pharisees, you make your phylacteries long and broad. This is a little box that they would put on their uh, right hand or on their forehead with little tiny scrolls in them with Scripture. And it's because in the Old Testament, God says you're to write my law um, it's, uh, on your right hand and on your forehead. Obviously, the law of God is to... Um, uh, guide our thinking and our right hand, our behavior. So it's talking about thinking and doing. But they're like, oh, that means that we got to make little tiny scrolls and actually put them on our body. And they still do it even to this day. So we, specific verses alone, it sounds attractive. Oh, no one can take advantage of you, right? I just believe the Bible. <laughs> but it's very, very dangerous. All right. We've got about six minutes. I'm going to be quick here. The big picture. Another argument I want to make here is that approaching it theologically, I was talking about this with Hannah Burton this week and with your brother, Drew. Approaching this theologically helps us to see the big picture. The big picture that worship is connected to all sorts of other things. It's built upon and cannot be separated from all these other things, doctrines of the Christian life. And so, messing with one doctrine could consistently and logically lead to the unraveling of it all. You guys are going to like this. (laughs) 
You start pulling on that thread and the whole sweater will unravel. Worship is connected with the character of God. Who you think and believe and confess that God is. Worship is connected to your doctrine of sin. Total depravity. Is man totally depraved or not? Worship is connected with God's characteristics. Is God sovereign? Is He holy? Is He righteous? It's connected with your doctrine of the church. What are we doing here? Why do we come together? What are we called to do here? It's connected with your doctrine of Christian liberty. What can we impose upon other people? What can be imposed upon us? It's connected to all these things. And so, if you approach it theologically, you see how these things are connected. And seeing the connection will um, give you pause to throwing something out if you can't immediately find a justification for it. Like, for example... The Sabbath, the fourth commandment. We're going to talk about that, so no questions right now. (laughs) But it's so easy to say, you know what? The New Testament doesn't mention a Sabbath. It talks about the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ, and that let no man judge you on which day, uh, whether a new moon or a Sabbath or a festival. So the Sabbath means nothing. It's easy to fall into that, but I'm going to argue... The reformers argued that no, when it's approached in its context with all these other things, you might be surprised. And if we throw out the Sabbath, we run in danger of throwing out a lot of stuff. Alright. So, we've got to approach this topic in light of Scripture. This is being our first point. Um, our first um, theological approach to this issue. We've got to approach it in light of what we believe about Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. This is kind of a foundational. I'm going to I'm going to end with this. We're not going to get to the rest of it. But what my argument here is that scripture is sufficient that it's complete and that there is enough revealed there to fully equip us for every good work. And that it leaves nothing out. So when we say, well, if we don't do this in worship, like for example, I'm going to be controversial here, an altar call. How many times I've heard it? If you don't have an altar call in worship, how are people going to respond? How are people going to be saved? Where is an altar call in Scripture? And we can talk about that. I see the smiles out there. But my argument is that there's nothing left out of Scripture. That that doesn't mean that we can't obviously use wisdom and good sense. But it does mean that there is nothing required of us or nothing that will work better than what Scripture has already told us. 
And so we can go in confidence and stick to what Scripture says, knowing that this is what God has given us, and this is fully sufficient and complete for the man of God. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything in Scripture, excuse me, there's nothing outside of Scripture that is necessary for a man to be complete and equipped for every good work. There's no new innovative methods. There's no new psychology. There's no new whatever um, that is necessary for someone to be equipped for every single good work. All right, so that's where we're going to go from here next week. I'm going to jump into um, more specifically what this means about Scripture being our final, and we're going to look at some applications of that. What does this mean when we approach worship? What is this, how does this define what we can and cannot do? And then we'll jump from there into the doctrine of sin, doctrine of God, doctrine of the gospel, uh, which will be the following week, before then we will turn and really, you know, get controversial and seek to apply it more specifically to the worship wars in our day, looking at styles of music, looking at personal preferences, uh, things of that nature. Are there any questions? Comments? Rebuttals or rebukes? (laughs) Speak now, forever hold your peace. All right, let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we do thank You for Your Word that You have not left us alone, uh, that You have not left us without this guide for our Christian life, this guide into all truth, and that, Lord, that You haven't left us without Your Spirit either, so that Your Spirit comes with that promise that You will lead us into truth. We pray, Father, that You would indeed write Your Word upon our hearts and that You would use Your Word to conform us to Your image, And Lord, that you would use your word to teach us what we ought to believe and confess and practice in this church. We love you, Lord. We ask that you would also be with us as we prepare now our hearts for the worship of your great name. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.